This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is the second half of our special double-length Mobile Suit Breakdown episode, 1.33, No Family, No Homeland. This half picks up immediately where the first one left off. If you have not yet listened to the first half, please do so now. In Amuro's first fight with Lala, we see him actually attack with his mind which is a thing I don't believe we've seen him do before. No. Uh, and Lala's reaction is immediate. It does pain her. It does affect her concentration. She describes it as a feeling of being like pressed upon. Like the, the force of his mind weighing her own down. Mm-hmm. Like she has expanded like a balloon or like melting. You know, when we talked about it in the last episode, the way she melts into the, the universe and when she expands, there's this feeling of like lightness and freedom. But then as Amro is also expanding, it's that feeling of the two consciousnesses pressing against each other. I'm not sure I would call Amro's an expansion. One of the things that the show has done in a very interesting way is to convey how different individual new types abilities manifest. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, with Lala, we have this expansion. With Lala, we have the sound that people Uh, within that uh, sphere can uh, hear. uh. With Amuro, I think we have something else. It's more of a a pinpointing. It's a finding. It's a sensing. Mm -hmm. But as you said, for the first time here, he attacks. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not an expansion of his consciousness, but it is a, a thrust. It is a strike. Yes. Before we get into the more conversational and psychological aspects of Amuro's last fight Mm -hmm. with Lala. In terms of the battle itself, there's this moment where he realizes, oh, I shouldn't focus on the bits. I should focus on the control. And the animation shows us the bits almost look like they're short-circuiting. There's a little electrical flash off of them that is either Lala's brain power controlling it (laughs) or or something else. It's probably Lala's brain power. But that Amuro is able to either detect it in such a way that he can anticipate where the bits will be or interfere with it in a way that slows the bits down enough that he can destroy them. Yeah. It's pretty cool. But he's using her own ability against her. Only a new type can kill another new type. We could easily do an entire episode of the podcast just on this final conflict. And maybe someday we will. Yeah. But here we are, ready to talk about Amuro and Lala. (laughs) Yeah, and a little bit, tangentially, they are there too, Char and Sela. Yes. We get one of the handful of comic relief moments in these episodes where the white base pilots are going to deploy. The orphans wearing their oversized spacesuits are in the way, and they just get bowled over repeatedly. 
And then they come together and they bonk their heads and someone yells, darn you, Amaro. And then Haro floats by with a Band-Aid on its face. Yeah, Haro floats by with a Band-Aid on its face. And so there aren't a lot of those comic relief moments in Gundam. There aren't a lot in these episodes. And to put it there right before the big battle and the big tragedy feels real intentional. Like that's setting us up for what's about to happen. A substantial part of Amro and Lala's conversation with each other while they are fighting. <laughs> this fight really is a conversation between the two of them. It's about motivation. Why do you fight? In a lot of ways, it's a callback to very early on in the series when Amro asks this of Bright. Like, why? <laughs> why are we doing this? Why should I do it? Mm -hmm. And Bright doesn't have time for that discussion. <laughs> and it's really not until the Garma funeral episode when he has everyone watch Giran talk about the aims of Zeon, mm -hmm. that's like, this is why we have to stop them. This is why we fight. And then in the Ryu's funeral scene, Sela gives us a different version of why we have to fight. We have to fight to make sure that that never happens to any of us ever again. I would say that we never get a clear articulation from Amuro about his personal feelings in this matter. Am I remembering that right? You are. We get a few episodes that delve into Amuro's motivations for fighting when he abandons the white base, when he deals with Ramba Rall. But it's also clear that Amuro has moved past that and did so a long time He's ago. He's changed so much since then mm -hmm. that it does feel as if his psyche is in a very different place. Yeah, now. yeah. He asks Lala, why does she fight? Because clearly they have this connection. They have this ability to communicate. And he wants to know why she's fighting. I think he wants to understand his enemy. Even here, there's a feeling like we don't need to be enemies. Mm -hmm. And Lala more or less tells him, I've seen how strong you are. And I know if I don't stop you, you'll kill Shar. And that's it. That's it for yep. Lala. Yep. Even on a more base level than that, Shar wants me to fight you. That's it. Shar wants me here to do this. I'm going to do whatever Shar wants. Amaro's response is translated as, that's crazy. The word he uses is baka, which is often translated as stupid, silly, you could say idiotic. We may not have had a very clear articulation of Amaro's own motivator for fighting now. We know he found the idea that Zeon is trying to subjugate everyone else as compelling. Mm -hmm. But the idea of risking life and limb and killing others for one person is shocking to him. Is it really so different from what he's doing? He's protecting his whole crew on the white base, but that's still risking life and limb, killing other people for the sake of a few people you're trying to protect. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's all that different. He seems pretty stunned by it, mm -hmm. that there is no ideological reason. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it all the more stunning for him, because it's not that Lala is a Zeon soldier trying to impose the dictatorship of the Zabi clan. She's just like him. She is a young, traumatized person who had a terrible childhood and is trying to protect the family that she has created for herself. It just hit me. This whole conversation that they have about motivations is the two of them before they have understood each other. Because I think they come to understand each other during this combat, during mm -hmm. their conversation. But this early part where they're talking about motive, they do not have that understanding yet. Mm -hmm. Because... Lala claims to have been able to sort of look into Amaro's mind, to look into his heart, 
And she says, I can see it. You have no family. You have no homeland. You have nothing to fight for. She has no family and no homeland. Yeah. But she's created something she cares about. Yeah. And so has Amaro. Amaro cares about the white base and its crew. And this is that moment when you realize that other people are just as real as you are. This is that moment where you realize you're not unique and the person you're fighting might be fighting for the same reasons that you are. Not that Amaro has realized that yet, because he goes on to say, is it wrong to fight with nothing to defend? And Lala says, it's unnatural. (laughs) And I think she's absolutely right. We all fight for things. And those things, those aims may be questionable, but there are always aims. It's never just for nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that line felt odd to me. Like, why does Amaro really think he has nothing to defend? Or just that he has no quote-unquote family or quote-unquote homeland. Yeah, I think it's that he he feels like he has no family and he has no homeland. He has no... He literally has a biological family, but he's rejected them and been mm-hmm. rejected by them. And he literally has a furusato. He has a homeland. He has a hometown. But it's not what he fights for. It's not important to him. And it's not really his anymore. He left so long ago. He does not have that connection anymore. And I wonder how much of this, the weirdness of that response isn't just Amaro having an argument and just responding, so what? You're my opponent. (laughs) I have to disagree with you. And then arguing back, well, but you're the same. Mm -hmm. Which perhaps Lala had never considered before because she seems somewhat discomfited by the idea. And from this, as they get closer, as they start to understand each other, they start to talk about destiny, unme, and about Arriving too late. I've been thinking a lot about that line. Lala tells Amuro, you're too late. Why did you have to appear now? What feels like the most logical read for me is that she thinks perhaps if Amuro had arrived sooner, they would have wound up on the same side. If Mm -hmm. he had appeared, so to speak, as a new type at an earlier point, then they would be on the same side instead of against each other, that his attempts to reach out to her now are too late, now that Mm -hmm. they're already entrenched on opposite sides of the war. Yeah, and I think that's right. It's not just about the world, it's about Lala personally. Because this connection that the two of them are feeling is like the most intense, emotional, psychological connection that they've ever had with anybody. It's an overwhelming feeling of connectedness and understanding and of being understood And to feel that for somebody and then realize... That you're going to kill each other. It's the only possibility for you at that point. Yeah, that, as Lala says, that's just too cruel. When they discuss destiny and when Lala asks, is this destiny? And Amuro says, I think it is. You know, they could be saying, feeling this feeling, experiencing this connection. Does this mean not only is it destiny that we met, but were we destined for each other? And did we find each other too late? As that scene crescendos, so to speak, Lala seems to be the much more emotional one and Amuro the much more calm. He's the one talking about, we have to accept it. We are all burdened by our own fate. Whereas Lala is the one railing that if this was fate, then it's too cruel. And as Amuro is talking about accepting your personal fate burden, (laughs) the visuals change and we see waves and water slowly rising and crashing against each other until they take up the whole screen. And we see their faces transposed over each other, 
the flashes of new type sparking become larger and stronger. It becomes more like lightning. It's more sustained. And then they are interrupted. And they are interrupted in part because this connection is felt by the other new types on the battlefield. This first phase of the combat has been just Amuro and Lala, while everyone else is off doing their own things. But when this happens, Shar gets his new type flash. Yeah. For the first time, we have solid evidence that Shar is also a new type. Sela gets one. Mirai gets one. And Sela and Shar immediately rush to join Amuro and Lala to join the combat. And it's their arrival that turns it back into a combat. Amuro and Lala have not been fighting. They must have looked very odd, their two <laughs> machines poised next to each other. And for much of that conversation, especially once it transitioned to the discussion of fate, the two of them, to the audience, appeared outside of their machines. They appeared to be free-floating in space, having a conversation with each other, <laughs> surrounded by sparkling lights. As the conversation ebbed and flowed, and as they came to understand each other, their representational bodies are shown getting closer and closer and starting to overlap. And then the fighting begins again. Sela seems deeply distressed that Shar can't tell that it's her in the G-Fighter. Somehow Lala can tell that Shar shouldn't kill whoever <laughs> is in the G-Fighter. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he narrowly avoids killing his sister. Uh, several times. Once Amuro blocks a slash of the beam Naginata. Once he actually cuts into the G-Fighter, but he only gets the, the bottom section. And once he actually cuts the canopy off. And sees her inside and realizes how close he came. And this contains what is so far my absolute favorite fight bit in the show. The camera is very focused on the Gelgoog and the G-Fighter. And then we get Char in the Gelgoog turning around and he turns around directly into the Gundam. Because mm. we haven't gotten any kind of shot showing us that the Gundam is approaching. Mm -hmm. We've been very focused on the Gelgoog, and then Char turns around, and the Gundam is right there, and it cuts the arm off the Gelgoog. It's, like, very surprising when it happens. It's shot in such a surprising way that even watching it for a second and a third time, knowing it was coming, every time it's still surprising. His fight with Amuro is riddled with close calls. The two of them are giving it everything they've got. It's a very well-done fight scene. It's very exciting. It's You feel the close calls. You're sitting there holding your breath, waiting mm -hmm. to find out what's going to happen. And then Amuro gets the best of Char. He's got a clean line on the kill spot. And Lala pushes herself in between them. And rather than destroying Char and the Gelgook, Amuro's beam saber hits the cockpit of the Elmeth. And we mentioned earlier, in that moment, Lala's faceplate cracks and it's almost like her new type energy sparkle. She also, as the Elmeth is destructing, we see a huge amount of her psychic energy, like almost in a, in a fan shape, shoot out of her head. Mm-hmm. And she and Amuro have another conversation, which the way I interpreted this scene is that this is happening in the milliseconds <laughs> before she actually dies, but that because they're having this conversation on a like mental plane. At the speed of thought. They have time to have the conversation. And now Amuro is the one who is sad and Lala the one who is calm. And 
the two of them discuss how it seems there will be more and more new types now. I forget which one of, which one of them says something along the lines of if more people were new types and could understand each other like we understood each other, maybe humanity would be more peaceful. I don't remember which of them says that, but either way. And Amuro says to himself, I've done something I can never take back. Something that can never be undone. And one gets a sense that he feels worse about killing Lala than perhaps he has felt about killing other Xeon soldiers. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. He's, I mean, he's sobbing. He's clearly totally distraught. He's grief-stricken. It's also the most emotional in that moment that we've ever seen Shar. Because yep. as Amuro is sobbing, Shar screams with rage and smashes his fist into one of the control panels on his Gelgoog. How much of that is frustration that his plan has been foiled and his most powerful new type is gone? And how much of that is grief over Lala? We can only speculate. And how much of that is jealousy? Because in those last moments, Lala made a connection with Amaro that was so much deeper and truer than the whole relationship that Shar had cultivated with her. But do you think Shar is aware of that? I think he felt it. I think that's what that new type flash he got indicated. I think he could feel that connection forming between the two of them. I'm just not sure he knew what it meant. And maybe he still doesn't. I believe that he felt something. There's two other oddities in here. One, Amaro suggests in this last conversation with Lala before she dies that he believes humans will gain control of time. Which is an odd thing to say with no clear reason for saying it. The only thing I can think of is perhaps he's wishing he could go back in time and not kill her. Yeah. And Lala expresses to him that from from her current vantage, she can see all of time. Mm-hmm. And she does not seem in any way sad or distressed that she's no, dead. No, It's just another state of being. It's in these moments that we get some of those very psychedelic images we mentioned before. The waves come back. We're shown that weird, uh, like, alpine-looking <laughs> scene of mountains and But when the waves meadows. come back, we also get a visual of water filling the screen with Amuro until the water is drowning him. It's the burden of his fate. It's too much. It's too cruel. But that alpine meadow in the middle of space that you mentioned Mm -hmm. is so idyllic. It seems so pleasant. So I mentioned that I thought the two running figures in that scene were children and you quibbled with me. (laughs) Do you think it's Amuro and Lala? No. I, I think it's intriguingly vague because the two figures are they're all one color each one of them is is only one color there's no detail and Mm -hmm. they're quite small they appear to be chasing one chasing the other and the one in the front is in red the one in the back is in yellow Mm. i think red very consistently has been coated with char yellow is interestingly ambiguous because both lala and sayla wear yellow pilot suits I suppose I associate yellow more strongly with Lala Mm -hmm. because it's also her street clothes. Sayla wears the Federation uniform, which for her is pink. Mm -hmm. But because the two running figures are all one color like that, it looks like they're wearing the spacesuits. And so it has the feeling of someone, a little sister, chasing after Char. And whether that's Lala or Sayla, 
could be either. I did not feel as if the way that was drawn indicated the flight suits. I thought it was more, here are some stick figures because we <laughs> want to be vague about what's happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they are generic children of the space future, that would help connect to the imagery of like an egg being fertilized that we get around that time, which I, otherwise seems not to be connected to anything. I think that's a very clear reference to all the discussions people are having about the future of humanity. Mm -hmm. There's something that feels a bit clinical about that kind of imagery, and mm -hmm. they're when they're talking about, you know, quote unquote, evolution of humanity in space, portraying it in that way, mm. it feels like it fits to me. When you think about the other abstract imagery that shows up in that scene, the, the ocean waves, the water and the lightning are all in their various ways associated with childbearing and childbirth. Lightning is often associated with quickening, with the, mm -hmm. the installation of life into inanimate matter, the water of the womb, mm -hmm. and then the, as you pointed out, very clinical medical sperm entering an egg. Fertilization. I've had a realization as we talk about this, because it feels odd in the aftermath of this combat to see Amaro so calm. Everyone seems concerned for him, and he insists, no, no, I'm fine, I can keep fighting. Haro checks on him and establishes for us that his brainwaves are excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Tennisball. And while not super cheerful, Amaro seems reasonably smiley and okay. And I don't... It's not that he's just a, become really good at lying about his feelings. Mm -hmm. That's not it. Something about that communication with Lala gave him some peace. Yeah. And that whatever he saw or felt there mitigated his grief to some extent. And in that scene, we can see that Lala was wrong. Amuro has a family and he has some place to go back to. The white base is his home. The white base crew are his family. And that scene at the end is Amuro and his support group, his fellow pilots, the orphans, his friends, his family. You know, Kai is the one who tells us this in the episode when they are going out to battle and the white base and the rest of the fleet are being attacked and they are going off to fight the other mobile suits far away. You know, they won't be able to see what's happening. And Kai is the one who says, I hope they'll be okay. We need to have some place to go back to. This week, we discuss Hermes, J-type missiles, and some of the odd place names and vocabulary from these episodes. This episode gave us an enormous number of things we wanted to research, so while we weren't able to research all of them in this episode, we will be coming back to them in the weeks to come. Look forward to it. Last week, we discussed one Greco-Roman god, Jupiter, and this week we move to another one, Hermes, or Mercury. But Hermes, the Greek name, is the one we're going to be focusing on because, that's right, the Elmeth is actually the Hermes. In Japanese, it would be Ermesu, or Hermes, or Hermes. Why might Lala's mobile armor be named for the Greek god? And why did the translators decide to call the Ermesu Elmeth instead? <laughs> First, let's talk about Hermes and why it actually makes a lot of sense to name this particular mobile armor after that particular god. 
Hermes has rather a large bailiwick. <laughs> He's herald and messenger to the gods, patron of shepherds, travel, poetry, trade, sleep, luck, and language, among many other things, and conducts souls to the afterlife, to Hades. Hermes is often depicted as a graceful youth and a trickster, cunning and clever. One possible reason to name this particular mobile armor the Hermes is because of the bits. I can see a parallel depicting the bits as messages sent from mm -hmm. the central mobile armor. Uh, Hermes also at one point stole Artemis's arrows. Ah. So there could be a reference there. Aren't Artemis's arrows the ones that never miss? Yes. Well, that seems pretty <laughs> that seems pretty spot on, actually. One of the most well-known stories about Hermes involves him saving Io, uh, one of Zeus's mortal lovers, who has been turned into a cow at this point, <laughs> uh, from the giant Argus Panoptes, the mini-eyed. I could see a potential parallel between Argus and another new type. Do you have a specific new type in mind there? Shar, uh, possibly, because mm. they keep talking about, well, Caecilia at least keeps talking about how Shar has this sort of inhuman ability to see and anticipate and know things. Mm -hmm. So maybe she is saving the chosen one, Amuro, from Char. I could see that. Uh, almost more relevant, I think, here is Hermes's place in Jungian psychology. And longtime listeners of the show will remember that Jungian psychology was very important in Japan at the time and very important to Tomino. The whole idea of a mother complex, which we know Amuro has a mother complex. It's in the baseline setting notes that established his character. The whole idea of a mother complex comes from Jungian psychology. Hermes' role as messenger between realms, between gods and mortals, between mortals and the afterlife and as a guide to the afterlife, made him god of the unconscious, the mediator between the conscious and unconscious parts of your mind, and the guide for inner journeys. Not just a guide to the physically expressed underworld, the idea of your body is alive and now your body is dead, but a guide for dying, the mm. mental process of, I am alive, but I know I am dying, <laughs> which, Given the way Lala's death plays out and the way in which the conversation with her seems to help Amuro process that mm -hmm. and process her death seems pretty spot on to me. Hermes is also the son of a Titan and an Olympian. He represents in-betweenness, the primordial and civilized culture. Hermes is capable of being in two places at once, of crossing seemingly uncrossable boundaries. Hmm. So I may have been wrong in the talkback when I said that I thought their last conversation took place just before Lala's death. Mm -hmm. It's possible she has died already when that conversation takes place. That is like between her ghost and Amuro? Yeah. Well, and she mentions being able to see all of time. She may exist outside of time now and mm -hmm. just be able to talk to him <laughs> whenever. <laughs> and she's able to cross over that seemingly uncrossable boundary between life and death. Mm -hmm. And she represents this pivot point. She represents the fulcrum between humanity and new types in a way. Mm -hmm. 
For all that the ancient mythology gives us some good imagery, I think her greatest importance is as this mediator. Mm -hmm. Hermes has also been associated since very early on, but especially in the medieval age, with magic and alchemy, transmutation, impossible abilities. One of the sources that I read talked about contrasting Hermes with Apollo and other gods of medicine, so to speak, but that Hermes' part in that is more shamanistic and less modern medicine. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it doesn't surprise me that he holds associations with magic as well. He's also a scapegoat. Hmm. The gods punish him for killing Argus, even though most of them wanted Argus dead. Hmm. <laughs> I should note also Argus is a giant. Yes. There is a Argus mobile suit comparison to be made there, perhaps. Especially when you remember that all of the Xeon mobile suits are essentially Cyclopean. They are giant one-eyed monsters. Argus is not one-eyed. Argus is many-eyed. Argus's all body seeing. is like covered in eyes. Several sources mentioned the depiction of Argus as covered in physical eyes came from later as people got somewhat more literal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and these depictions, by the way, are ridiculous. You should look them up. It's just a person with eyes drawn on like his arms. Because if you translate it as all seeing, it doesn't necessarily need eyeballs for that, right? <laughs> like if we're talking about magic abilities, mm -hmm. he doesn't need to be physically covered in eyes to be able to see everything. Mm -hmm. The design of the Elmeth does reinforce its connection to Hermes, though. And I think it's pretty clear once you've looked at it that this is not merely a coincidence, and especially when you consider everything that Nina just said about the mythological parallels between Hermes and Lala. The Elmeth's design, when you look at it, looks like it has sort of a flat brim, but then it has sort of two pointy decorative wings coming off of the sides. And that makes it look very similar to the hat that Hermes is always wearing when he's depicted in art, which is a flat-brimmed cap with decorative wings on the side of it. Is there a name for the kind of hat that Hermes is wearing? or It is a it is a patassos. Patassos. Patassos are these sort of flat-topped, wide-brimmed sun hats that were very common among rural Greek farmers in the classical period. Okay. They were also adopted by the Macedonian cavalry. And the Hermes version has the wings, which are not standard. <laughs> There's another aspect of the Elmeth that's worth pointing out that I don't think connects directly to Hermes, but as long as we're here, let's talk about it. At the back of the Elmeth, there is a weird sort of almost hook-looking tail. It's very small. It sort of goes backwards at an angle and then turns sharply to point forward again. And to my eye, it looks like nothing so much as the beak of a swan. Which connects back to the first time we met Lala on side six when she and Amro watched a beautiful swan fly through the air and then die. As for the name of the Elmeth or Erumesu or Hermes, I've seen it speculated and I think this is probably true that the decision to use Elmeth instead of Hermes was out of concern for the trademark rights of Hermes, the international luxury clothing and accessories brand. Now, I have to preface this for ethical reasons by saying that I am not a Japanese lawyer. I have not trained in Japanese law. I am not familiar with Japanese trademark law. However, I have reviewed Japan's trademark database. <laughs> and I have been able to confirm that Hermes has maintained an active trademark on the word Hermes 
or Hermes, in Japanese, in Japan since at least the 1930s. I imagine part of the concern was from the merchandise side, because while I can't see there being a problem with them calling it the Hermes in the show, uh, if you then wanted to sell a toy called the Hermes, you might run into some difficulties. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this actually is a pretty significant concern for anime production and for Gundam in particular. A lot of the names of things get chosen because they are names that Bandai or the sponsor or Sunrise, whoever, can get trademark protection on. If you ever wonder why every different anime mecha franchise has to call its mechs something different, it's because of trademarks. During the research of this, I did stumble upon an interesting linguistic shift, which is that up until about the 1960s, Hermes in Japan had a trademark on Herumesu, like starting with an H like Hermes. Then in the 1960s, they shifted to trademarking both Herumesu and Erumesu. And then over time, they shifted to almost exclusively using the latter Erumesu. Nina speculated this may be because of an increasing familiarity among the Japanese public with foreign and particularly French words that would lead them to uh, more fully understand and appreciate the French pronunciation of Hermès rather than the English pronunciation of Hermes. And finally, the most important thing, <laughs> what the white base crew calls the Elmeth. This was actually brought up by one of our listeners in our Discord chat, Church, who asked whether the Japanese and English versions used the same euphemism for the Elmeth. In the English, the crew of the white base refers to the Elmeth as the tricorn hat, because it's, you know, kind of pointed like a tricorn. And the subtitled version also uses tricorn to describe the Elmeth. But in the Japanese, it's not quite right. Tricorn hat in Japanese is sankaku boshi, or triangle hat. But the term they used for the Elmeth is tongari boshi, or pointed hat. If you look up Tongari Boshi, you'll find a variety of different pointed hats, but the most common ones are what I think of as the princess hat, the very long, stiff, conical hat that was worn by some women during the Middle Ages. And then you'll also see the sort of stereotypical witches or wizards hat with the wide brim and the tall cone that often flops over a little bit. So the answer is no. <laughs> In both of these episodes, Shars Zanzibar uses an extremely powerful missile called a J-type missile. And these struck me in particular because they've been mentioned in the show before. Some episodes back, Shar complained about not being able to use their J-type missiles. And now we actually see them deployed, and they are shockingly effective. So that got me thinking, there's got to be something here. And I started digging a little bit. There is a J-type missile now but it didn't exist in 1979, so we can discount it as a potential influence. But if you're curious, that is the Turkish J-600T Thunderbolt. There were three missiles in service in the 1970s that could plausibly have inspired the J-missile of Gundam. Those were Israel's Jericho, China's JL-1, and the United States' Jupiter. However, each of those was a nuclear-tipped ballistic missile with ranges measured in the hundreds or thousands of miles, and none would really have worked as ship-to-ship -ship missiles. So 
I don't think that's what it is. And we know that Shar is not firing nuclear missiles because the show made a huge deal about it the last time one of those was fired. That was back in episode 25, The Battle of Odessa. So I think the better comparison is actually, and you're going to be shocked to hear this, to World War II. (laughs) And to the Imperial Japanese Navy's much praised and much feared Type 93 Long Lance Torpedo. Long Lance is a very cool, very dramatic name. But it's a name that was given to the torpedo after the fact by U.S. historian Samuel Elliott Morrison, so we're not going to use that. The Japanese called it the Type 93. I'm just going to refer to it as the Type 93. Going into the war, both Japan and the U.S. had pretty realistic ideas about how it was going to play out long before they ever fought it. The Japanese strategy, acknowledging the vast superiority of the U.S. fleet just in terms of numbers, was to use small, light craft to chip away at and wear down the larger U.S. fleet while it was crossing the Pacific before it reached the Japanese side. Then, once the enemy reached the sea near the Japanese mainland, the Imperial Japanese Navy would send in their fresh battle fleet to hit the U.S. forces with everything they had for one decisive battle. In Japanese, Kantai Kesen. And this seems to be the strategy that Xeon is following, too. They're using small groups of light ships to chip away at the Federation fleet as it approaches Abawaku, and they prepare for one final decisive battle. The problem with this sort of strategy is that light ships, like destroyers or submarines, can't hope to take out heavy ships like battleships or cruisers, except with torpedoes. And Japan has had, at this point, a lot of success with torpedoes in the earlier Sino-Japanese and Russo-Japanese wars especially when fighting at night, and so they went all in on developing a superior torpedo and a doctrine for using it. And that eventually became the Type 93. It was big, huge for its time, more than two feet in diameter, 30 feet long, and weighing around three tons with a thousand pound warhead. That was 50% larger than what you would find on other torpedoes of the era. Because it was so big, it had to be fired off of the deck. And while this made it more vulnerable, and some Imperial Japanese Navy ships were sunk by their own torpedoes, they could also be reloaded and ready to fire faster than most other torpedoes. The Type 93 was fast. It could travel between 34 and 50 knots, and it was long-ranged. Its maximum range was 40 kilometers. I don't know if you have this handy, but how do those speed and range compare to other torpedoes? I do have that handy. (gasps) Because you say that's fast, but those numbers don't really mean anything to me unless it's contrasted with something else. The U.S. main torpedo at the time was the Mark 15. It was about 60% as fast, 60% as powerful, 60% as big, and had only 30% of the range. The Type 93 also had another advantage, which was that it did not leave a trail of bubbles on the surface the way other torpedoes did. So it was much harder to spot it coming. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice all of those attributes are on display when the Zanzibar fires its J-type missiles. The missile is visibly huge, fast, and the Federation ships are totally unable to intercept it with their missile countermeasures. A brief digression. While I was working on this research, longtime fan of the podcast and occasional guest host, Sean, asked that I provide some alternative data on the dimensions and capabilities of the Type 93. (laughs) So just in case you were curious, one of these torpedoes weighed about 425 stone and had a maximum range of approximately 87,450 cubits. Next time, are you going to use hogsheads or something? (laughs) How many strange units of measurement can we use? 
as I've already pointed out, the US Mark 15 was inferior to the Type 93 in practically every way. What made all of this worse is that the Mark 15 also had a poor quality detonator, the Mark 6 Exploder, and it frankly just didn't work. Frequently, torpedoes would land direct hits on Japanese warships, literally embedding themselves in the hull without the exploder doing its job. Oh my god. <laughs> well, <laughs> that feels like the sort of thing several people should be fired for. <laughs> yeah, you'd think so. My understanding is that the company that made the exploder for various reasons was not allowed to test it properly. That is a running theme we see in the show. People keep breaking out new weapons, new machinery, and they're like, okay, but we haven't been able to test it at all. <laughs> okay, here's the new supposedly best thing. <laughs> we think it will fix your problems, but we haven't been able to test it and we can't promise you anything. <laughs> Compounding all of these problems is the fact that the US just assumed that the Japanese could not possibly have a torpedo that was better, at least substantially better than the Mark 15. Hubris. And so when American ships started taking hits from Type 93s fired from way, way outside of what they considered to be torpedo range, they concluded that there had to be undetected submarines nearby. The American Navy did not have accurate intelligence about the Type 93 capabilities until like 1943 or 44. Wow. Yeah. The Japanese had a further tactical advantage in torpedo warfare because, as we briefly discussed back in episode 1.29, Monsters, the Imperial Japanese Navy was arguably the finest night-fighting naval force in the world during the Pacific War. U.S. naval doctrine for night-fighting was, one, if at all possible, don't. <laughs> and two, if forced to fight, U.S. ships would use searchlights to illuminate their opponents and then attack immediately with gunfire. In theory, those searchlights had enough range to illuminate any ships within torpedo range, and their guns had enough range to hit any ships within torpedo range. But ooh, the US is very, very wrong about what torpedo range means to the Japanese. So while the US ships were lighting up the night and revealing their positions with searchlights and gunfire, the Japanese would launch fast, nearly undetectable torpedoes from the darkness. And the cherry on top of that stealth Sunday is that even when launching the torpedoes from their tubes, the Japanese used compressed air, invisible and nearly silent. I'm attacking the darkness. The darkness fires torpedoes at you. Ah. <laughs> the Type 93 was far from perfect, though. That speed and range combined to actually make it kind of hard to hit with it. If fired at its standard effective range of around 22 kilometers, the torpedo would reach its target in 15 minutes. At its maximum range, we're talking more like 35 minutes. And it is not so easy to predict where an enemy warship is going to be 15 or 30 minutes in the future. They countered this, however, by developing a new firing doctrine. You would fire three torpedoes while sailing on what was essentially a parabolic arc. You'd fire one a little bit before you thought you ought to, one right when you thought you ought to, and one a little bit after. So if you undershot or overshot, you would still hit the target. And while the exploder on the Type 93 was rugged and reliable, the gyroscope was prone to breaking if the ship firing it was moving at a very high speed when it fired. Even so, the Type 93 was impressively successful, at least early in the war. 23 Allied warships, including a fleet aircraft carrier USS Hornet, were sunk after hits from Type 93 torpedoes. Of those, 13 were sunk solely by Type 93s. Many of those were destroyed by a single hit from Type 93, just like the Salamis cruisers destroyed by J-type missiles during this episode. The 1,000-pound payload on the Type 93 was enough to break a destroyer in half. So what was it that made the Type 93 so much better than any other torpedo of the era? 
It was really one simple element, oxygen. The first torpedoes were propelled by a reservoir of compressed air that was fed into an engine and used to drive a propeller. By World War II, this had developed into what was called a wet heater type of engine, where the compressed air would be mixed with a liquid fuel like kerosene or methanol and ignited. The resulting gases would drive the engine, and at the same time the combustion chamber would be cooled with water that would then be converted into steam, and that steam would be used for additional propulsion. This would also produce exhaust gases, and those would create that telltale trail of bubbles behind the torpedo as it traveled. But throughout the 1930s, the Imperial Japanese Navy figured out how to build a torpedo that used not compressed air, but compressed oxygen. This is not as easy as it sounds, because compressed oxygen just really, really wants to explode. But success meant that they could effectively load a torpedo with five times as much propellant without changing the tank size. That allowed for a massively larger warhead and, at the same time, improvements to both range and speed. A final note about the Type 93. For all of its advantages, it was the wrong weapon at the wrong time. Its early successes notwithstanding, the decisive battles of the Pacific War were fought by ships that never even saw each other. The naval war was won by aircraft, and the Type 93's 40km range was nothing compared to a plane's. And as Japan lost the war on all fronts, even the Type 93 was modified for that last and most desperate kind of attack, so sadly typical of the last days of the war. In 1944, the Imperial Japanese Navy modified the design for the Type 93 to create the Kaiten, a piloted suicide torpedo. Both of the officers responsible for designing the Kaiten were among the 106 men to die piloting them. And at that price, they managed to destroy one small landing craft, one oil tanker, and one small warship. Ugh. There were some great person and place names in this episode, as well as some interesting vocabulary. I'd like to start with Mahal, which, if you recall from the episode, is the name of one of Zeon's colony cylinders, the one that they are evacuating. Uh, now, in Bahasa Indonesia, Bahasa Melayu, and Tagalog, Mahal means expensive. But in India, a Mahal is a palace, for example, the Taj Mahal. Hmm. It can also mean a mansion, sometimes living quarters, or stopping place, abode, a summer house, private lodging. It derives from Persian, from which it derives from Arabic. Uh, and I have a few different dictionaries that I referenced for that and will include the notes. It makes it sound a little bit like a new housing development, doesn't it? <laughs> We're going to call it palace. <laughs> All of the street names will be adjective geographical feature. Everyone will want to move there. <laughs> Then we have Geldorva. Now, I found plenty of places and people named Dorval. Dorval. There seem to be a couple of different towns and cities, uh, and there's a family name, like a European family name, Dorval. There's also a made-up name of a composer or opera singer in an episode of Babylon 5, which I'm sure <laughs> happened after this episode of Gundam. In terms of just Dorva, not Dorval, there's a made-up name of a composer or an opera singer in an episode of Babylon 5, which I'm sure came <laughs> after this episode of Gundam. There are also some street names that have Dorva in them and some person names. But despite finding records of people whose names were Dorva, I could not find any resource that said where that name derives from or what it means. 
According to the notoriously terrible Google Translate, <laughs> Geldorva might be Gujarati, which is, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, sorry, uh, it's the sixth most spoken language in India from the state of Gujarat in West India. Um, and in Gujarati, it supposedly means drawing gale. Uh, we do know that they pulled a lot of names from other languages, but that seems like kind of a deep cut to me. <laughs> I don't know. Dorva also popped up as the acronym for the Drumheller Off-Road Vehicle Association <laughs> and the name of a dragon in some game and the name of an elf miniature. <laughs> Yeah, the only thing I could find when I was looking for Geldorva were some later anime that referenced Geldorva from Gundam. Mm. It could just be nonsense. It could just be like Gelgoog. Yeah. If one of our listeners out there knows of something called Geldorva that could have inspired Gundam, please let us know. Yeah, the closest I could get looking up names specifically was that Durva, unfortunately, they don't get any more specific than Indian on this particular site. They don't. Uh, mention a more specific language, but uh, is a name for a medicinal herb that is sometimes also given as a name for girls. And Darva of Slavic origin means honeybee. Hmm. But those are pretty distinct from Doruva. It's not Duruva or Daruva. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. They probably just made it up. <laughs> as for, we were saying Butcham. <laughs> But possibly more appropriately, Buttsham. If you don't remember, Buttsham is the name of one of the two Xeon officers who is supposed to protect Lala, Lieutenant Buttsham. There were absolutely places called Buttsham at some point in the UK. They show up in a bunch of really old records, including sessional papers from the House of Commons, records from the English Place Name Society, <laughs> and an alphabetical list of populated places derived from the census of Scotland as well as the papers of the Surrey Archaeological Society. <laughs> now, if I do map searches now, I cannot find any such place. Uh, one imagines place names change over time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why a place named Buttsham would decide to change their name. Uh, but such a place definitely did exist at one time, possibly several places. <laughs> In the conversation between Sela and Amaro, we found ourselves very curious about the Japanese word that is translated as far out. <laughs> she accuses Amaro of not being very far out. <laughs> uh, so we looked it up. It's tonderu. And while it is a colloquial term, that is the way the dictionary translates it. Far out or groovy. The kanji used means to soar or to fly. I tried to do a little more searching about the word because it's colloquial, but it's also very dated, right? Like, there are only particular decades you really hear people use those kinds of words. Mm -hmm. So rather than look at English to Japanese, Japanese to English dictionaries, I looked at Japanese dictionaries. Uh, and several described it as more like acting with freedom, being unconcerned for common sense or what society thinks. Acting as you personally see fit without being caught up in society's expectations. Being unconventional. I even found a conversation on Yahoo Japan of someone asking, like, what does this word mean and what are its nuances? And there's a certain amount of debate back and forth among people. Uh, one person describes it as very much a 70s buzzword for liberal, open mind, atarashi taipu. Hmm. Literally, new type. Although, interestingly, Makvei uses the term atarashi taipu when he's fighting Amuro, but no one else does. After that, it's always new type. Maybe they thought new sounded better. It's possible that atarashi taipu 
carried too many real world connotations. Like that meant something to people at the time. Mm-hmm. Atarashi Taipu was a reference to a particular type of modern person, like mm-hmm. modern young person. And so they wanted to distance from that terminology and create their own new term that mm-hmm. didn't necessarily have the same associations. And it's possible that's part of what the conversation with Sela is about, where Amro says he's actually quite an old type. Like, he's not this modern, unconcerned with convention young person. Mm-hmm. And Sela's like, yeah, you're not really groovy at all. <laughs> Lala, a broken bird who almost flew. Do you think she saw her own death the way she saw that swan's? The Swan by F.S. Flint Under the lily shadow and the gold and the blue and mauve and the wind and the lilac pour down on the water, the fishes quiver. Over the green cold leaves and the rippled silver and the tarnished copper of its neck and beak, toward the deep black water beneath the arches, the swan floats slowly. Into the dark of the arch the swan floats and into the black depth of my sorrow it bears a white rose of flame. Next time on episode 1.34, Parting Shots. Beta Twa. Hey, Jealousy. White Lies. The True Enemy. An Abawa Coup d'etat. Hayato finally hits it. The legs are for show. Student recruits. Losing their heads. The swords are a metaphor. And the end. Will you be able to survive?
make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Shar and Lala are hashtag relationship goals, on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The music for Lala's Memorial is Stars Collide by Josh Woodward. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. But it's a good lie. It's a white lie. It was true an hour ago. No, thank you. I don't okay. That. Okay. <laughs> so that's what I was. That's what I was worried about. Gundam, sha sha sha, do, 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 sha sha sha. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? Yeah. I'm getting good at these. I was gonna say dark, but actually bright. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot. Thank you for reminding me. The hat, the tricorn, but not a tricorn. You'd fire three torpedoes while steaming on a... Steaming? Sailing? This would also produce... This, of course, would also produce... This, of course, would also produce... Why can't I say the word produce today? (laughs) You just did. I thought the translations of Mahal were really interesting because I could easily see that being an intentional double meaning both that it is a hall a living place a palace but when Giran turns it into his solar ray Degwin makes a big deal about the price that Giran is paying well because Giran is focused on the monetary costs and that it is cheaper than building its giant weapon from scratch but Degwin is quick to point out that he's paying a political and human cost as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And that that still matters. Yeah. And so Mahal the colony is both the hall, but it's also the price. Mm-hmm.